Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my usual co-host, Captain Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hi, Bill. Hello, Ward. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. It's been a busy week here at Beach Hall, uh, highlighted by a uh, board meeting. Um, and uh, those are always uh, well. We have two basic kinds of boards. We have an editorial board, which you run, right? Which meets every month, first Wednesday of the month, and we've described that before on the show. Um, and this week we had the very heavy duty uh, board of directors meeting, um, and you got to brief uh, that that august body, and it includes former CNOs, uh, former vice chairman, uh, COCOMs. Captains of industry, it's it's a pretty. Uh, uh, I, I walked in there in the middle of the uh, the, the meeting, and uh, just the aura is pretty. Uh, you know, I've I've briefed some pretty uh, important people in my life, but the the sum total of all those people in one room is pretty impressive. Um, so uh, I will say you did a great job briefing oh, the, the group. Thank you. So kudos Thanks. on that. Yeah, Admiral Stavridis is our chairman. Admiral Keating is uh, our vice chairman. Uh, former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work is on the board. Uh, Philip Bilden, Captain of Industry. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's an, an August former group. CNO Greener. Former CNO was, Greener. Was we right? had uh, we Admiral Winnefeld, former Winnefeld. Deputy Chairman or Vice, Vice Chairman, Chairman on the phone, uh, phoning in. Uh, but uh, he's been there in person uh, in the last one, so uh, that's a big deal. And we're we're sort of a uh, once that's over and success, successfully completed, our budget was approved. Um, uh, we're, uh, you know, sort of a uh, big exhale and uh, it went well and uh, everybody was uh, good to go because we have a great story to tell and a lot of good things going on as, uh, as we champion often here on the uh, Proceedings Podcast. So one of the things that we don't often do here, but I want to do it today because we, it was a discussion uh, at the end of the board of directors meeting yesterday, we have a free play conversation with our board. We do it always with our editorial board for proceedings, and we also do it with our board of directors meetings, a conversation about what are the things that haven't been in proceedings that should be in proceedings or topics that aren't covered uh, with this, you know, the contributor model. Sometimes, um, you know, there are things happening that, that just aren't covered or nobody's writing about for us. So I will reach out right now to any junior officers. This was an idea that, uh, our chairman, Admiral Stavridis, brought up uh, talking about the big NATO exercise, Trident Juncture, that is going on. Uh, big NATO exercise up above the Arctic Circle. Is much much has been written about. The, In fact, the U.S. and I News team, Megan was, Megan was up, up there. there yeah. She went up to, uh, up to uh, Iceland, right, to cover that yep. exercise. Uh, but Admiral Stavridis had the idea that we should have, uh, a, you know, some junior officers writing who have been in the exercise in Trident Juncture. Uh, writing about the art, writing about the exercise, and it would be great to have a marine. And uh, one of our recent marine authors is in Norway right now, so we're reaching out to him to ask him if he'll write about it. Uh, but we'd also love to have uh, a Navy JO, whether it's a pilot, whether it's a submariner, or a, you know, guy on a surface ship. Uh, you know, write about the exercise, write about what you learned, what what's it like operating up there in the North Atlantic. Uh, so a month ago, we had former Secretary of the Navy John Lehman on the podcast, and we were talking about uh, the maritime strategy of the 1980s and operating on carriers up in Vestafjord and above the Arctic Circle, as you and I did when we were junior officers. Uh, so, you know, it's a little bit of back to the future, and the Navy and NATO are doing that again. So exciting times. Um, 
I also wanted to highlight, uh, this is a little bit of me bragging about my boss because he is unlikely to do it. Uh, so last week, uh, I was in New York with a number of other uh, senior staff from the Naval Institute uh, at the New York Yacht Club last Thursday night on the 25th. Our CEO, Pete Daly, Vice Admiral Retired, was honored by the National Maritime Historic Society, Historical Society, with their annual Distinguished Service Award. Uh, and and uh, Admiral Daly was uh, recognized for his inspirational leadership at the U.S. Naval Institute for broadening the outreach of Proceedings Magazine, advancing the professional, literary, and scientific understanding of sea power and other issues critical to national defense. So um, big, big award for Admiral Daly. At the, uh, it was presented at the New York Yacht Club right in Midtown, Manhattan. A very exciting event. There were probably, I guess, three or 400 people there. A few other people were, uh, were recognized with awards. It was a great, great event, and um, uh, I, I would say uh, definitely justified and well-earned by, uh, by Admiral Daly. And he was kind in his remarks to say it was, a, you know, he, he viewed it as a unit award, uh, as an award that uh, the entire staff here at the Naval Institute has merited uh, over the last, you know, six, seven years uh, since he's been uh, CEO. So that was a, a really fun event. Um, what else? Oh, I wanted to highlight a, uh, um, a USNI news story today by Megan Eckstein. Uh, where it says the Navy is thinking beyond littoral combat ships for the future of mine warfare. And so in the September issue of proceedings, we had a, a piece written by a couple of junior officers about a mine warfare capability uh, called the Naval Mine Warfare Company, uh, Expeditionary Mine Warfare Company. Uh, but this article by in USNI News today says, you know, the Navy is now starting to think beyond platforms for counter, you know, mine countermeasures. And so instead of being glued to the LCS and that program that the Navy wants to uh, buy some capabilities, uh, a suite of capabilities that are not platform specific, that are not platform centric or tied to one platform. Uh, in, in, in many ways, it sort of uh, highlights the uh, article that was in the September issue about, you know, these sort of uh, capabilities. Some of them are unmanned underwater, you know, vehicles, unmanned uh, surface vehicles, um, the ability to move from, you know, platform to platform, ship, aircraft, launched, et cetera. Uh, anyway, it's an interesting piece, great, great piece of, co- of a re- reportage by Megan. Uh, and and picking up on a topic that was covered uh, by a couple of JOs in the September issue of Proceedings. Fantastic. So last week we talked Intel uh, with uh, my uh, sometime co-host Billy B, who's the deputy editor-in-chief. And as we've also mentioned on the show, when we rolled out Billy B as the FNG a couple of weeks ago, um, both of the uh, head shed at Proceedings are uh, retired intel officer. So uh, we got to talk counterintelligence uh, with the Marine First Lieutenant last week, a great conversation. So this week, it's my turn, as it were, to talk uh, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking talk that with as our we hands were getting ready and, for this and fighter guy today. stuff. Yep. So uh, we're very uh, happy to have on the line from uh, my own, my old hood, uh, NAS Oceana down in Virginia Beach, Lieutenant Commander Graham Scarborough, uh, who just left my first squadron uh, back in the day? It was called VF thirty two, and he he knew it as VFA thirty two, flying the the Super Hornet. Um, but uh, he's just changed changed jobs now. He's over at the wing now. 
Um, but we wanted to talk to him about his article in this month's proceedings called Fix Naval Aviation's Adversary Problem. So it's a very cool topic, especially when we talk peer conflict. Um, so let's just get right into it. Hey, Graham, thanks for calling. Hey, thanks a lot. Really appreciate you having me. I uh, love the podcast, and it's uh, awesome to be able to talk to you guys. Well, thanks very much. So let's go back to the Wayback Machine when young Ward was in his first tour in VF-32. On the flight line there, we had two aggressor squadrons in essence, right? We had VF-43 ambush, uh, and in their heyday, they flew three type model series, A4s, F-16s, and F-5Fs. And they also had the Kefir for a while. So we'll talk about contract airplanes uh, as part of your article. And then we had VFC-12, which had A4s. Um, and they acted as aggressors as well as banner draggers and all kinds of other things that they did. Uh, now, as you look down the ramp there, are there any squadrons that perform that function? Yeah, so we have uh, here at Oceana, we have VFC-12. Uh, and they're flying uh, primarily uh, f 18 uh, legacy mod. Well, they're all legacy models, uh, and they have recently started acquiring a lot more F-18 Charlies. Uh, so the the Charlies are more or less phased out of fleet uh, service by this point. Uh, they've got some at the uh, the RAG, the training squadron here in Oceana, uh, but the bulk of those airframes have gone over to VFC uh, 12, and that's their primary uh, platform. Now, uh, the over the over the months since I first started writing this article. Um, their flight line has has grown in terms of uh, the number of airframes they have on the ramp, um, but uh, the primary concern is uh, sort of the ability to to use those airframes to generate sorties to support the fleet squadrons at a unit level, and that was kind of the genesis for this um, this piece. It, it started when I was opso uh, at the uh, at the Gypsies. I uh, really came up against kind of the difficulties in coordinating external red air uh, and, and sort of the limitations. And that's kind of the genesis of this, uh, of, of the piece. Okay. So um, take, take us through it. Take us through what the, uh, frame the problem for us, if you will. Sure. So um, essentially the, the red air, or, uh, air-to-air training, right, requires bad guys. So you, you can't just go out there and pretend like you've conquered the skies and there's nobody out there who can reach out and touch you. And, and that's been true even before we were talking about peer or near-peer near threats, right? We still needed an air-to-air threat to train to because that's a skill set that needs to stay sharp and stay relevant. Uh, so you have to provide red air. Uh, the term we use is uh, red air because the good guys are blue and the bad guys are red. And, and you have to provide red air. And where does that red air come from? Well, what I found when I was the, the OPSO, and, and I'm in charge of – sort of scheduling these events is that by and large most of the red air came from other fleet squadrons and the what happened would be a, a deal between uh, my squadron and another squadron down the hangar they'd say hey we'll give you this many red air today if you give us this many red air tomorrow for example and what i found was you know now that's two squadrons burning flight hours flight time maintenance actions air crew um, flying red air for each other and we've got these airplanes down the street that are painted up in uh, cool camouflage colors with red stars on their tail. How come it's such a chore to try and get these guys uh, supporting us? And what I found was that the adversary uh, program, and when I say adversary, I mean the Navy's organic 
um, solutions. So that's VFC-12, who we've already discussed, VFC-111, who fly the F-5 out of uh, Navy Key West, uh, VFC-13, who fly the F-5 out of Fallon, and then to some extent VFA-204, who are based in New Orleans. What I found was, you know, th- they just weren't able to put up aircraft in sufficient quantities to meet the requirements for the events we were doing. So an event will specify, if you're flying Mission X, you need Y number of red air. And it can be anywhere from two red air to six red air to eight red air. And VFC-12 alone couldn't make that number happen. And so we had to go to another squadron. The problem is that those fleet squadrons are supposed to be training for deployment. They're supposed to be training to produce combat readiness, not uh, flying red air sorties to help out their buddies down the down the hangar, um, and so there's a little blurb in the article uh, on the uh, third page of the article that kind of outlines this. You're you're basically investing in some cases 400 percent of your required hours to get one syllabus sortie for your squadron. So when I if I'm Brand X down the hangar and I'm supporting you in a red air sortie that doesn't get me any training x for my matrix now to be fair it might it, it there are a handful of red air events that uh your fleet jos are required to complete uh but it's a ha- it's a handful it's uh i don't have the the syllabus in front of me but it's somewhere along the lines of uh, fewer than five sorties that they're required to fly as red air and that's both as a wingman and as a flight lead um, so, so the number of required training, the amount of training you can really get out of that as a as a blue fighter is uh, is not very it's not very high. Now, you know, there's there's benefit to flying red air, just as in there's benefit in flying straight and level to Memphis for barbecue, right? You're <laughs> so you're talking on the radio, you're processing information as a adversary, you're studying adversary tactics, you're learning about their systems. But in the end, that's not, that's not what we want our fleet guys to do, in my opinion. What we want our fleet guys to do, in our opinion, is to understand the enemy so that they can fight and defeat the enemy. And the way to do that is to, is to be the good guys and to go out there and employ our systems. Um, and so, that the, the, again, that ret- the return on the investment for using fleet red air is just not, it's just not there. For example, um, about uh, nine months ago or so, uh, Oceana sent, uh, I believe it was two squadrons of uh, fleet jets, two fleet squadrons to Fallon to provide red air support uh, for various commitments that were going on out there um, from the Top Gun course to Air Wing Fallon workup um, uh, evolution. And so that's two whole squadrons whose entire training pipeline is effectively um, uh, pushed to the side for the period of time that they're in Fallon supporting another fleet squadron or a fleet air wing. And the fact that you have to use fleet guys to do that, I, I see as basically uh, th- that's not the way that it, it should work in sort of a, an ideal scenario. Ideally, VFC, X, Y, and Z, they roll into Fallon in a big, you know, big gang and with their weird-looking jets and their, uh, uh, you know, funky flight suits, and they go out there and they do the, the job that they're supposed to do, providing adversary support, and then you leave the fleet guys to focus on fleet things. Um, but that has, not been the, uh, that has not been the trend over the course of uh, my time in the airplane. And Graham, for our non-aviators or 
non-intel officers who supported aviators, which I was one. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, well, let's put that out there. Yeah, You're I, honorary I, brown shoe. I am a brown shoe yeah. guy. Yeah. I was a, a CAG AI and a squadron intel officer. And uh, Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so one of the important things about air-to-air training is that you get some dissimilar air, air-to-air training. So DACT, I remember the guys in my squadron would, would talk about that a lot. And, you know, going up and flying, if you're flying in an F-18, fighting another F-18 is not as interesting or challenging as fighting another type of aircraft. And so, as Ward mentioned, you know, back in the 80s around Oceania, you'd, you'd see uh, the aggressor squadron flying F-16s and F-5s and Kafirs, the Israeli-made fighter, uh, and A-4s. And so, you, you know, the Tomcat squadron would go out and, you know, fight against dissimilar aircraft. And down at, in Cecil Field, I remember some of those aircraft would detach uh, and come down to Cecil, where I was uh, based with uh, VFA-87, or the, the OPSO was always calling to the Air Force F-16 squadrons that were over at Moody or Valdosta and other places to get dissimilar training. So uh, talk about that and also talk a little bit about, in your article, you mentioned the, the uh, civil or the commercial air services, the CAS uh, option. Yeah, absolutely. So um, dissimilar air, air combat training is, is really important uh, because you're it's essentially a, it's essentially problem solving, right? It's 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 three dimensional problem solving in in terms of energy management and systems employment, and so you don't necessarily need to fight uh, a Su twenty seven, which is kind of a Russian Chinese frontline fighter. You don't necessarily need to fight one of those to learn good basic fighter maneuvers or BFM, but you do need to fight something different, right? You need to be put in a scenario where the other guy can do something with his airplane that maybe you can't do with yours. Uh, but conversely, right, the, the opposite side of the coin is true as well, right? You need to be able to do something with your airplane that he can't counter. And so when you're fighting another airplane that is the same uh, uh, aircraft, all of its sort of uh, characteristics in terms of uh, power and energy management and speed and um, even weapon systems, right, they're all equivalent or the same. And so there's goodness in fighting something that's different uh, because it's it's teaching you uh, an adaptive skill set rather than a scripted series of maneuvers that you perform because you know how to beat your own airplane, right? That doesn't do any good when you show up to the merge with somebody who, whose airplane doesn't fly like yours. Well, and also and, one of the skills in, in, a, in a visual environment when you're doing a many-v-many, which potentially appear threat could devolve to is the across the circle sort of recce right you know being able to pick guys out across the circle and if it's another hornet that's impossible you're not using that skill at all absolutely absolutely and so so contract air services right would seem to offer kind of a solution right uh so the companies that i mention in my um uh, in my article, fly some of those airframes that you kind of led the discussion with. Uh, ATAC flies the Kafir, um, Draken flies the A4. Um, there's some other airplanes out there that they fly the Hawker Hunter and the L39. Um, these are airplanes that are are very different from uh, a Hornet. Now, the problem you run in with uh, run into with cast services in the the way the Navy's set up right now is that the contract is not written as a uh, fleet squadron support. And so um, if you go to the merge, if you, if you end up in visual range of one of these airplanes, they are limited 
uh, in terms of how much they can maneuver. They can't turn with you. They can only turn a certain a certain amount, and then they, they have to be done fighting. So you don't get into that sort of knife-in-the-teeth kind of fight um, that, that you also need to practice. And the reason the contract air services are limited in that way is because the contract was written as providing support for fleet exercises like Comp 2X um, uh, training or uh, a ship gets underway and it needs to practice shooting at something, they're going to point a CAS airplane at it uh, and the Aegis guys are going to shoot away at that thing until their training objectives are met. And what that means is that the, the Naval Aviation... Naval Aviation's uh, strike fighter squadrons are the third priority on these contract air services, uh, and so that means those, these guys are not available to us as a training aid unless everything else has kind of fallen out. So what that means is we have these great dissimilar platforms, but the contract isn't written so that they can um, turn aggressively in visual range, and kind of turning on that support is almost always a last-minute thing, right? ATAC, who's the current contract holder, they maybe get to the end of the quarter and they realize they've got a bunch of hours that they have left to spend. They don't have anything on their calendar. And then next thing you know, some guy like me at the wing sends an email to the squadrons and says, hey, the, all these ATAC hours are available. The problem is a good OPSO and a good training department has already written their training schedule for the next couple weeks. And so you, 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 can't, you can't turn the ship uh, to mix metaphors. You can't turn the ship that quickly and suddenly turn on these guys uh, to uh, to make a big air-to-air event happen when you've been planning air-to-ground all month or something like that. And so there's a lack of responsiveness in the way the contract is currently written. Uh, I talk about the follow-on contract, so Nautic, which is the uh, command out in Fallon that kind of oversees aviation warfare development. They put out a call for a fourth-gen adversary contract. And when I first heard about this, my ears perked up and my heart started beating, and I got really excited because... Fourth gen in uh, in aviation terms, that's a term invented by Lockheed Martin to sell airplanes, uh, and but it's kind of become part of the common vernacular, and it implies sort of a MiG MiG twenty nine, an enhanced MiG twenty nine, Su twenty seven level threat, kind of comparable to a Super Hornet, and so when we when I heard that there was a contract out for an adversary or a, a contract air adversary of that level. That's great news. That's awesome because what that means is high performance, modern systems, upgradable, hopefully dissimilar airframe um, that now gets to be part of this conversation. Well, when that contract was awarded, the Navy uh, decided to award that contract to a company called TAC Air, and I don't, I don't have any brief with TAC Air. I don't. I'm sure they're a great company. Um, I don't uh, work for either of the other companies that were competing against them, but. The Navy awarded the contract to TAC Air for the F-5 Tiger II with an upgraded radar. Well, the problem is that the F-5 Tiger II has been in use since Ward before you were flying airplanes, right? It's not a modern fighter. It's it's a equivalent to a MiG-21, yeah. uh, uh, you know, kind of Vietnam-era aircraft. Right. And so the Navy's response is, oh, well, we'll give you a fourth-gen systems capability, but without the performance capabilities that we also need, right? You look at a flanker, that is a big, huge airplane with lots of gas and lots of weapons and lots of systems. We need something, you know, you're not going to get a flanker on American uh, ramps as a contract uh, uh, aircraft uh, for some reasons I discuss in the uh, in the article. But you need to do better than an F-5, which is what we, we already have F-5s. We could buy those radars and put them in our F-5s ourselves. 
The reason we don't is because it's it's silly to think that that covers the the breadth of what we are actually trying to to replicate. Um, so that's some of the limitations of contract air services. And that that most recent contract actually was awarded and then protested and then won uh, in the course of this article being published. So it didn't didn't make it into the piece. Um, and uh, and it's so one of the problems. The, that it kind of encapsulates the problem with the with the contract air services is they're trying to do it on a budget they're trying to save the government money and if the contract is not being doesn't have a buy-in from the fleet level guy the squadron level people who are doing this training every day then you may get a decision like Gucci radars in an F5 which sort of fulfills the letter of the law but misses out on the spirit of what the fleet really needs you also make a point about uh, some of the constraints of the aircraft that are available for a commercial company to purchase, to use as aggressors. And you say, you know, it's like CarMax, but with jets. And so for a, a company that's going out trying to find, uh, you know, used jets from uh, other nations, you know, well, they've probably been retired for a reason that they've been they've been flown a lot. And so the, the number of useful hours and the number of G's that that aircraft can pull safely has already been expended. Uh, or, you know, as you also point out that, you know, the cost of operating an F-16 is about the same for a CAS company as it would be for, you know, the, the U.S. military. So you, there's not a whole lot of cost savings available there. And then uh, I, I was very interested to see this this bit about the you know the contract vehicle restraints that you know they bid these things for five years and as you point out if you know if a company's out to buy a 10 or 20 30 million dollar airplane they've got to amortize that and they would like to be able to amortize those costs over a much longer period of time than just five years five years is not a lot of time to get you know 30 million dollars back on, on an investment. And so if they don't get the contract again, you know, they're stuck holding the bag on an expensive aircraft that they may be upgraded and they only got to fly for five years. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when, when I started writing the piece and this, this fourth gen contract was still kind of in the ether waiting to happen, I realized like what a benefit giving uh, one of these companies, if, if one of these companies was, was already at the tail end or the midway point of a 10 year contract, we would have, uh, some of their newer inventory out there flying right now. And what that would mean is that we would have, uh, in, instead of uh, uh, one of these companies like ATAC or Draken kind of coming to the Navy and saying, hey, we bought these uh, Mirage F1s, which is the kind of the platform that those two companies went with as a pitch for this thing, instead of them saying, hey, we've got these and we promise they're going to work great, right? With a 10-year contract, they could throw those airplanes into the pr- already underway contract get them out on the flight line, prove their worth in the air, or disprove it, right? You've got to give the Navy uh, the benefit of the doubt, and maybe they would have put these mirages up and they would have been a huge mess and wouldn't have worked out. But either way, that gives the company and the Navy the opportunity to see these things in action. Instead, what you got was uh, one company falls back on a tried-and-true Vietnam-era airplane that everyone's seen on the ramp a million times and, by the way, is dirt cheap to operate for five years, the other two companies are say are kind of betting on the come there and saying, "Hey, this is going to work out for us. Trust us. Please pick one of our companies." Well, okay, if you're a bean counter and your job is to um, make the the ledger uh, square at the end of the quarter, right? That's a pretty easy choice. If you've got a longer 
contract available to you, well, now you get those airframes flying, and it gives those other companies a leg to stand on when they say, look, we're flying this airplane right now, it's involved in fleet exercises right now, and it can be adapted to a more of a uh, squadron or air wing level support platform. And so that's where the, the, the motivation for advocating for uh, longer contracts in some instances uh, in my piece came from. So Vince Cruz on Facebook Live has posted a link for a Sinatra document. Uh, Vince, we can't open that file, so if, if you have a specific question for us, uh, please please write it out. So, uh, Graham, you know, you're fresh from uh, your department head tour, um, and you were the OPSO, as you mentioned, which is the coolest job in the Navy. Um, I got to be squadron ops and then CAG ops back-to-back, which was the, my favorite, favorite job. Um, and... Uh, do you feel like, and this is one of the deals with a multi-mission aircraft, right? So when the, in my day, the early days of, of, of uh, me flying, the Tomcat was a strict air-to-air platform. So there was a, in our TNR matrix, our training and readiness matrix, we had a lot of air-to-air requirements, right? So you couldn't be C1 or whatever we call it, T1, unless you had a bunch of sorties done. So again, VF-43 and VFC-12 were flying buku sorties in support of squadrons trying to maintain the proper readiness at any given time. Um, As the Tomcat became a bomber, um, we had to do, you know, now you only have so many flying days in a month and you only have so many hours in the day. So the amount of air-to-air requirement went down. And this also was coincident with uh, the Swifty program coming to to life. And, And as you've mentioned, Fallon, uh, and NSOC and everything, uh, Top Gun moving from Miramar to, to Fallon and all these things. So it, there was more discipline and standardization across the fleet. Um, so there was less sort of flying club, good deal, Friday afternoon, many v. many sorties, and then de- debrief at the club stuff was becoming less and less. Um, but some would say that air-to-air skills atrophied. And now you add the post-9-11 world, which you know intimately, where the Taliban don't have an air force, um, you know, and and uh, Iraq's air force uh, went away in Desert Storm One. Um, so, arguably, the threat wasn't there. But as we've been talking about for a year and a half now, peer threats. China has a real air force. North Korea has a pretty viable air force. Russia certainly has a real air force. So, how are you feeling? Warfighting preparedness-wise, fresh from your OPSO uh, department head tour with respect to air-to-air training, uh, I would I would say, well, as a, uh, a department head in the in the twilight of my tour, I was uh, flying a lot of the red air sorties uh, myself as the uh, young guys stepped up and started to do the air-to-air uh, good deals. Uh, but that also meant they got the long briefs and the long debriefs uh, while I was uh, waiting for them on Duval Street. So I can't uh, I can't complain too much. <laughs> Um, Where were you? That, were you in the bull? Please tell uh, me you were in the bull. No comment. Um, okay, I was everywhere. But anyway, <laughs> uh, my, uh, I, I would say that the working within the constraints of sort of the Swifty syllabus, and uh, which is that's the Strike Fighter Weapons and Tactics syllabus. I think of it as like uh, an upgrade syllabus for aviators as they progress through the squadron. It's their quals uh, that they have to get. Within the constraints of that syllabus, I say we do a very good job of balancing um, kind of competing requirements. It's been a long time since um, uh, Carrier Air Wing 3, my uh, air wing, uh, has been in the workup cycle. 
Um, so we've been on a little bit choose your own adventure uh, as we've progressed through kind of the backside of maintenance phase, getting ready to start workups uh, in the uh, near future. Um, so I would say the the system is set up to to strike a balance um, as as best it can, and then you you try and tailor what you're focused on based on where you think you're going to go. And so what that has turned into for the bulk of my career, well, all of my career really, has been uh, uh, air superiority, uh, low threat, precision strike, and close air support. And um, you kind of fill in the white, what little white space there is on the calendar. You fill that in with those sorts of missions because that, that's more or less where you're going next. Now, with the recent sort of changes to our deployment outlook, right, uh, Truman is uh, currently underway on deployment 2.0 uh, this year, and they're nowhere near the Middle East. They're all up uh, getting their noses blue uh, right now, right, the, uh, watching the northern lights. They, right, there's, there was no way for them to kind of predict that that was going to happen, right? I don't think they knew that that's where they were going to be. And so how do you tailor the workup syllabus to prepare them to go fight above the Arctic Circle in a much more uh, kind of uh, toe-to-toe with Ivan sort of mindset. Uh, and uh, I think that that's a bit, those are big questions that need to be asked, uh, particularly with, you know, do we look at uh, perhaps specializing squadrons? Uh, you know, maybe you don't make them all air-to-air, you don't make them all air-to-ground, but maybe you f- make focus areas for one squadron over another. Do you increase the length of the uh, workup cycle so that you can build more variety into your, uh, into your training. Um, uh, those are really important conversations that are kind of happening at the ready room, uh, ready room level. It'll be interesting to sort of see how sort of big Navy uh, adapts to this uh, kind of idea that the carrier is uh, not so tied to the uh, component or the uh, combatant commanders and, and is given a little bit more of latitude uh, figuratively and literally speaking to uh, to move around the globe. Well, that, that's a cool idea. So just bring me up to speed. So CAG-3 had, and this just let's add growlers into this, how many Hornet squadrons were in the air wing? We ha- On our last deployment, we had, uh, let's see, one uh, F-18F squadron, that was uh, 32, and then we had uh, an Echo squadron. We had VFA-131 who were flying uh, Charlies at the time, and then from the West Coast, we had VFA-86 who were flying uh, single-seat rhinos, uh, and then we had uh, the uh, Growler Squadron. So we had, essentially, we had, what's that, four varieties of F-18, yeah. uh, two Super Hornet types, the Charlie and then the Growler, um, which which sounds more diverse on paper than it is in the real world. Um, and all of us were required to be sort of uh, jacks-of-all-trades with the addition of the tanker mission uh, to 32 and 105. Uh, now you're going to have an all Super Hornet air wing, um, essentially across the fleet, uh, with the uh, with the Growler in there, uh, with uh, maybe the JSF coming online uh, in the near future. I don't I don't know what their deployment schedule looks like, but their first squadron is out in Lemoore transitioning right now. So for a long time, you're going to have all F-18 traditional kind of medium attack kind of profile, and um, you know that's a much bigger question than the adversary problem is. Is that a good thing? Uh, 
and uh, uh, you know, people will argue either kind of either side of that uh, either side of that question. So, I think you bring up an interesting point with respect to specializing in mission areas. So, we're just spitballing here. This is not doctrine. Um, who would you assign the air-to-air mission? Would it be an F squadron or an E squadron? Um, I I think there's a uh, there's an argument to make it more of a mix. Um, I think that an but I would lean more towards the single seat E's with more more fuel uh, available to them uh, and uh, uh, more kind of on station time. And then the the F's are kind of more suited for the attack role with an extra set of eyes, an extra um, sensor operator, someone to manage the weapons. However, I do think that an F or two in an air to air formation uh, would would kind of add a, a Wizzo as sort of a quarterback or mission commander type who can kind of act as sort of a fighter director. I think that would be really interesting if you could work a Wizzo and pilot crew up to that point where they could kind of quarterback a division of fighters, single seat fighters. Um, I think you could do some pretty cool stuff uh, working with that. Um, I think that there's a uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, you had August, you guys had August Cole on the podcast not too long ago. There's some cool August Cole ideas about uh, um, using fighter aircraft to control drones and and sort of direct an air battle that way. And I think a two seat platform lends itself to some of that more uh, futuristic stuff. Um, but I would I think you have a solid argument for making your F's your uh, your strikers. And your ease, uh, your fighters. The problem is um, when you when you've been operating in a low threat, precision guided uh, domain for a long time, right? No Echo Squadron skipper is going to volunteer to fly the DCA, burning holes in the sky all day, while uh, a bunch of two seat guys uh, fly in and drop JDAM on predefined coordinates, which is something that his his pilots can do just as well as as we can, right? There's it, the current operating environment doesn't really lend itself to specializing that way, but we have to be forward thinking and think about, you know, what sort of missions we may be involved in the future, what sort of air to air problem we may be involved in the future. And, uh, you know, the, the future is here, right? It's, this is not 10, 20 years down the road. This could be five years down the road, uh, instead. And so we need to start, I, I think we need to start focusing on that. Yeah, it's funny. I flash back to uh, 1995, 96 on America in the Adriatic and doing the Bosnia War, um, where the Hornet guys shut the door on us uh, in terms of strike planning. And, and they were doing all the cool stuff in terms of dropping bombs all around Banjaluka and, and Sarajevo. And the only thing that kept us in the fight at all was the TARP spot, you know, the reconnaissance mission. Sure. Um, otherwise, we were doing boring DCA hops against a non-existent air threat, you know, so... Uh, I just had a, a flashback to pre-Lantern days. Um, so, yeah. uh, hey, a little bit off or, or, or tangential to this, in, in 2017 we had a few conversations, uh, interview uh, with the air boss at the time, and then we had some conversations uh, late last year about readiness. And uh, just curious, coming off of your department head tour, how was – uh, maintenance and readiness as you came back from deployment. Uh, did were, were you able to keep enough up jets to to execute your your flight hours and uh, you know keep your guys on a good training trajectory, or did you give away all your jets and go down to like you know two aircraft on the flight line? So we we were never that uh, kind of in straits that dire, and it's it's a credit to uh, the fact that I think uh, Big Navy in in a lot of ways has sort of realized that. Uh, the Super Hornet is it 
for now, right? Uh, simultaneously, they started divesting themselves of the Charlies, uh, primarily as a result of the uh, physiological episode sort of incidents that we've been reading a lot about uh, in the news over the past year or so. Um, now, that said, we came back. We were the initial participants in the Optimized Fleet Response Plan, OFRP, and so there was a... Um, there was some uh, emphasis behind kind of making sure that we crossed the finish line uh, successfully, you know, kind of still maybe not sprinting, but we at least jogged across the finish line uh, instead of uh, kind of fell our way there. And so we, we had really good material support uh, as we kind of finished up our uh, post-cruise sustainment. Um, now, the Navy is, has done a lot of things to try and kind of shuffle the, the deck chairs a little bit um, to keep squadrons flying, and and I think some of that is normal. I mean, that's the normal post cruise. Okay, you guys are no longer uh, the pinch hitter. It's time for you to go to the back of the line and wait your turn, and we're going to take parts uh, off you and do maintenance on the airplanes. Um, I, I think a lot of that is kind of your normal cycle, but um, you because there's been such an emphasis on um, transitioning squadrons to the Super Hornet, getting out of the F-18C business. Um, I think you, you, we have seen um, kind of some longer wait times and some uh, kind of make do with what you have uh, sort of thing, and that's part of the th- part of what I discuss in the in the article is that what would be great would be to keep the best Charlies in the VFC uh, adversary support uh, role, get rid of the ones that aren't are essentially not serviceable anymore, and then put a bunch of rhinos, a bunch of super hornets in there to plus those guys up uh, as we wait for a replacement for the F-5 and the F-16. The problem is we don't have the super hornets to plug into the reserves uh, until we get the fleet healthy. And and what that looks like and how long that will take, uh, I, I couldn't begin to say, but it's it's a combination of buying more airplanes and prolonging the the life of the airframes that we have, plus trying to get the Super Hornet out of the tanker game, which eats a ton of hours, um, and uh, and airframe life trap counts and things like that. So um, it's a complicated problem, and and uh, as a uh, as a uh, lowly uh, department head, I, I don't profess to have the solution, um, but for the adversary problem to get better. Uh, in Navy squadrons, we have to we have to heal the Super Hornet readiness problems that are across the fleet, and there have to be a lot of different things to do that. I know you guys uh, know uh, Pampers Kahansky, uh He has written a lot on the on the people side of things. You can't you can't focus on the planes and ignore the people as well. And and the Navy sort of been naval aviation has sort of been sprinting uh, to try and address that readiness problem as well. Guys are are uh, frustrated uh, with sort of uh, the the career path, the the typical career path, and they're starting to get out. And uh, the Navy is uh, trying to address that in addition to the uh, the platforms piece. So it's it's a big it's a big challenge. I don't, I don't profess to have all the solutions. Um, and uh, you know, it's kind of a lot of dominoes have to fall just right to make this thing uh, kind of work out. Yeah, very complicated stuff. Uh, and you mentioned Tony Kahansky. We published a Proceedings Today piece by him earlier this week. So our listeners can find that one, uh, essentially what, what the Truman's uh, 
de- shortened deployment, the lull in carrier deployments uh, really means is good piece, getting a lot of uh, online comments. Uh, so Graham Scarborough, Lieutenant Commander, one each of calling us from uh, NAS Oceana today to talk about his article in the November issue of Proceedings called Fix Naval Aviation's Adversary Problem. Graham, uh, really appreciate you writing for Proceedings. Also appreciate you've written for the blog, some funny pieces on the blog, uh, really, you know, some tongue in cheek stuff, uh, mixing, you know, serious topics with some good humor. Love that. Um, and, uh, we look forward to another, uh, proceedings article that we have in the hopper, probably published in the January or February issue of proceedings. So, uh, thanks for writing for us and, uh, for joining us on the podcast. And, uh, we hope everything goes well with your new job at strike fighter wings land at Oceana. And just remember everyone, victory begins at the U S Naval Institute. <laughs>